the fear. The fear. The fear. The fear. The fear. The fear. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is the last episode. I need to lay low for a while so the governor doesn't extradite me. Uh, Unfortunately, I have been indicted. And if I'm not careful... Me and Colin are going to prison. We were caught with our pants down around our ankles in the back of a gas station with a couple of hammers. And I had to use the Patreon money to pay him to be quiet about it. Had to put a muffler on him. Clumsy Colin in his leopard skin pants. Me in my $500,000 dress. I want to compose your video game soundtrack. I will do a very good job and I will work within your budget. Contact me, noranygard.com. You can support me on Patreon. Here, uh, the rest of the episodes, um, patreon.com slash noranygard. I accidentally took a uh, sort of six-month hiatus from my weekly release project called Citizen Scientist. There's a new one. I'm going to link to the Bandcamp in the show notes it's just like a you know 40 minute ambient thing and it will probably be up uh on like streaming and stuff maybe by the time you hear this today i'm going to talk about um a commodore 64 composer named rob hubbard but before we like jump into the episode i wanted to give a little Bandcamp united update um because Bandcamp is union busting and they uh, publicly shared a, a letter to Bandcamp CEO Ethan Diamond on March 28th and I'm going to read a little bit from it and then also um, on Monday the um, 3rd of April, which is maybe when you're hearing this, they're doing um, like a campaign, like Zoom call update thing. I will attend it and um, report back in. Uh, so if you miss it, that's um, hopefully I can kind of recap it for you. But if you want to, um, 
if you you just have to like RSVP to their Zoom thing and they'll either invite you or like send you a video afterwards. But I will I'll link to that also. Um, so their letter from March 28th um, addressed to Ethan Diamond says, uh, okay, so they had a they had a meeting with um, between Bandcamp and Bandcamp United. Um, the different like leadership representatives and the union representatives um, and the NLRB um, that happened on March 24th and quote, we were pleased to hear at the company all hands on March 23rd that you are committed to facilitating an election without delays and hope that you will keep that commitment by avoiding an, an NLRB meet hearing. Um, per the NLRB's timeline, Bandcamp has until April 4th um, to reach a stipulated agreement with our union over the terms of an election. Um, the next paragraph, uh, as we have shared, we are committed to a fair and timely election. For us, a fair election looks like ensuring that all of our colleagues who are eligible to receive the protections of our union do, in fact, receive those protection, receive these protections. Fairness, in short, means following the law with no arbitrary cuts from our union. We will not leave our colleagues behind. A timely election for us means no unnecessary delays and avoiding a hearing whenever possible. We know that delays to this process only provide space for union busting in order to delay or disrupt having to listen to our collective voice at the bargaining table. Um, yeah, I mean, companies like are always trying to like push these things back and then like create any kind of any kind of weird divisions that they can in order to get people to decide to vote against it. Um, the next paragraph, um, quote, we were disappointed that your representatives from Foley and Lardner LLP have, be uh, have begun engaging in union busting, despite your assurances in the all hands to not intentionally delay an election. During the call, they argued for the arbitrary exclusion of eight workers from the bargaining unit engineering leads and product managers um, expressed undue concern over the accuracy of employees' permanent mailing addresses with the intent to, de to delay an, an election and shared their intention to take Bandcamp United to a hearing, even with less adversarial options available. Uh, so all of this is incredibly both like disappointing, but also like not shocking at all. Um, I expected this, this like always happens. And I mean, I think like a big part of what I'm wondering is like how far Bandcamp, Epic, whoever, um, will, how far they'll push the union busting and also whether or not people get retaliated against, um, you know, I've been following like the Starbucks stuff this last like week or so. And it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable the things that, um, there's just like stupid shit that like companies try to pull to, uh, you know, get people to, to, to like, just to crush a union. 
And it's also at a time when, like, you know, there's a massive amount of public support for for unions. And, yeah, anyway. Um, okay, and then... The final... Um, Final section here. A hearing would substantially delay this process and push off our election date by months. This would have wide-ranging negative repercussions. Bandcamp can avoid a costly and time-consuming hearing by allowing these workers to cast provisional ballots that can be challenged after the election takes place. Um, the NLRB outlines when a hearing is appropriate, and in our case, it is simply... Uh, it simply is not necessary. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I, okay, so here's the last paragraph. In this instance, because less than 20% of our bargaining unit is in dispute, the only reason leadership would insist on a hearing is to draw out the timeline and bust our union. We have until April 4th to reach an agreement, and we will be doing everything in our power to avoid a hearing. We look forward to a fair and timely election and call on you to do the right thing. Um, if you haven't signed their petition yet, you should do that. If you want to learn more about, um, what they're up to and how to support them, um, you can find Bandcamp United, um, you know, all over, uh, that's their, that's their like Twitter and Instagram handle. Their website is bandcampunited.org. It just... It just sucks. It just sucks. Like, it sucks. It sucks so much. Like, I've been on Bandcamp since almost the beginning. I think 2010. But I don't think 2008, maybe 2009. Um, you know, it, it, it's become such a... T it's, like, totally essential. Sure, like, there's problems with it, blah, blah, blah. You know, as, like, a platform. As, like, a, you know technology service or whatever um but it's it's just i don't know it's just so essential for so many so many different music scenes and types of musicians and there's like there's so much there's so much there and it's i mean it's just really sad to see the company the ceo just say fuck you to all of us. I mean, I, I don't know. I take all of this very personally. I think anyone who's been on Bandcamp for a long time um, should take this extremely personally. You know, if you've ever sold anything on Bandcamp as an artist, like you have given money to this company if you've ever bought anything, you've given money to this company. And I like, I, it's just absurd. It's absurd and it's it makes me so fucking mad. Um, okay, today, uh, the first thing, the first thing that I wanna talk about with what with this whole, uh, all, all of this, like, Commodore 64 music, the first thing I want to mention is this, like, I don't know, like, 
chiptune music, video game, like video game fandom stuff in general, like brings out the most, it's like such a particular and extreme like form of fandom because it's like, it's this combination of people who are like very obsessed about something. They have a lot of nostalgia for something. Um, and then like a lot of the people like who are, who are doing like, um, you know, some of the, uh, more involved, like, work around these games and like the music for these games like archiving it and stuff like a lot of these people end up having um you know like you grow up with video games you get involved in like computers maybe you go to school for computer science um so you like you're you, you have this deep personal personal connection to the medium and then you're you also a lot of these people are like extremely creative and also have uh, very like high level like technical skills, and that kind of like uh, fandom around these different um, pieces of media creates. I don't know. It just it 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 creates such a unique type of community. Um, you see this in speedrunning where it's like, you know, there's people who are like playing the games who are like really like try, like dedicating so much of their lives to just like getting good at these video games. But then there's also people who are like, you know, have have more like, I don't know, computer science type skills who are figuring out glitches in the game or who are doing like tool assisted speedruns, like doing a speedrun with a computer uh, and like trying to figure out like all of these different um advanced like strategies and ways to break the game and then that comes back to like the the people who are just like speed running it like there's all of this like interaction between like different levels of like people of different ages and people of different like um types of like technical skill and it i don't know it creates for some very interesting i guess like kind of feedback loops around these different uh, types of media and different, like, IPs, you know? Uh, so the first thing that I want to talk about is this website. Um, actually blanking on the... I'm blanking on the URL because it's, like... No, it's like numbers, <laughs> uh, but I'll link to it. And it's called um, Stone Oak Valley's Authentic Sid Collection. Um, and let me just like read from some of their like about section. I guess like basically like this is like one person who is like, uh, you know, like an enth enthusiast for like a lot of Commodore stuff, like the C64, the Amiga and uh this person like uh basically like has a has a has a bunch of different types of commodore 64s hooks them all up to a server and then like builds this automated process of like loading the like automatically loading the music files automatically recording and cataloging the music files so this is like, 
This is, I like, when I found this website, it absolutely blew my mind. This is unreal to me. Um, and so let me read you a little bit from their about section, because this has been, like, definitely an essential uh, um, resource for me and, like, hearing hearing some of this stuff. So the Stone Oak Valley Authentic SID Collection, it's a um, nonprofit and private project, an automated recording technique invented by me to mass record music from the legendary Commodore 64 and its original SID sound chips, 6581 and 8580, including variations of 6581, such as R2, R3, and R4. So there's this archive and you can like search for like, for example, for this, like I searched through the, um, compo- like the composers for Rob Hubbard, who's the composer that I'm going to talk about today. And, uh, then every, it's like sorted by the games. And then within the games, you're able to just like download the MP3s and the FLAC files and, there's different, there's like five different versions for most of these um, recordings because, uh, as I kind of talked about before, the um, SID sound chip like underwent like pretty significant revisions. And it's, I don't know, to me, it's kind of interesting to be able to hear some of the differences. Um, and yeah, okay. Um, here, here's a post from that website, um, on July 10th, 2022 quote, uh, since I had not updated the facts of project since 2019, I wanted to see how much files and data was produced since the start in 2006, a whopping 16 years ago until yesterday when the project was finally over forever. Okay. The amount of files just the MP3, MP3 and FLAC recordings, uh, inclu- this includes all the revisions, but just the MP3 and FLAC, um, 898,338. It's like bonk- bonkers to me. Uh, I, yeah, okay. I searched through, we're talking about a game from 1985 today. So I searched through by year for games from 1985 and searching their database for 1985 alone shows over 2,700 games that have had their soundtracks recorded. Um, There was a like 2015 uh, blog post from archive.org quote, the process which is documented here involved setting up a large amount of Commodore hardware connected to servers which would reboot the machines over and over, playing thousands of pieces of music in different configurations and automatically cataloging and saving the resulting waveforms. It's like, it's crazy, like, that, you know, that this person, like, spent so much time doing this, um, organized it so well, put it, like, all on the internet, like, you know, despite, like, potential copyright concerns. I, all of it is just, it's so well done and impressive and, like, unbelievably amazing to me. 
do I want to devote my life to this? Uh, no, absolutely not. I, um, and like, I don't want to put listeners through that either. Um, I don't want this to like devolve into a video game music podcast. Uh, there's so much stuff that I want to dig into, but like, I do want to have a, a better understanding of the history of a lot of these computers, um, and consoles, arcade, arcade games, um, all of this stuff, I don't know, is fascinating to me. I'm trying to like think of a think of ways that I can kind of slowly chip away at at like different um, you know different different computers, different eras, um, and for something like the C64, I might like pick one or two uh, you know professional composers. And slowly, like, go through their their gameography on like a kind of semi regular basis. Like Rob Hubbard, like maybe I'll talk about him for I don't know once a month for a while, and keep kind of rotating through some of that. I don't like this episode. In some ways, is kind of an experiment today because it's like I have like over I think I have like twelve pages of notes on one game, you know, and. I, I'm, like, almost kind of embarrassed of my, like, propensity for becoming incredibly obsessed over these, like, small details and trying to figure out as much as I can about, like, a single topic. I, you know, it's probably, like, I don't know, it's probably not, like, smart to, like, podcast like that or, like, I don't know, it's probably not interesting to listen to. I don't know. I, uh... No, I take that back. It's incredibly interesting. You're going to be so, you're going to love this. You're going to love this so much. I mean, I'm like deeply fascinated by like what happened and like what people's reactions were and like all of it. I also, I want to foreground this too. Like this game is an early game from this composer and the music is not good. And I think focusing on, um, something bad at like at the start is to me kind of valuable to see um the trajectory and yeah so any anyway um the the other thing i wanted to mention um oh well and backing up to like rob hubbard um i think technically do- uh, doctor dr rob hubbard i think he has like an honorary doctorate so doctor you know dr robert this is the guy that the beatles wrote about dr robert um i've been like really digging into his like biography trying to figure out kind of what his you know life story is and what he had to say about having worked on all of these projects um he was born in like 1955 he's still around He's still, like, occasionally giving interviews and stuff. Um, Really cool, interesting guy. uh, And goes on to make some music that I think is pretty fascinating. Like, and the way that, the way, like, this, part of the interesting thing to me about, like, how early on all of this is, is that the composers, like, weren't just, like, you know, it's it's like a mix between, like, composing in, like, a, 
almost like standard classical, you know, staff paper way, but then also all of the little things that you have to do to like save memory because there's like barely any like data storage on these like storage mediums. And, uh, you know, he, he was like, he started by learning basic and then, uh, uh, ended up learning like more and more assembly language. So he's like, he's, there's a like clip of him talking about like his staff paper at the time, he would like write out the musical notation and then write like hex codes, um, in like around the like margins, you know? So it's, it's like a totally different way of doing like electronic composition that people still are not like, people don't do this. Like even the, uh, even the like trip chiptune stuff, like if somebody's going kind of going going back, like being retro in the way that they're composing, they're using stuff like trackers. I yeah, I like struggle to think of um uh um almost like anyone that is like doing straight up like assembly language composition. Um, I'm sure there are people and I, there might be some like hybrid like tracker hex code stuff. And of course, like you're using, I'm not saying like just hex code. I'm saying like actually programming it in assembly language, uh, like trackers use hex codes. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm sure there, I'm sure there's people doing that. I think that's something that I'm going to kind of like keep my eye out for. I wonder if um, Mono Lake what is his name? Robert. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Henke? Is it Henke? It's not Henke. Uh, but German dude that was like uh, involved in like uh, starting like Ableton and shit. He he had a project that like I, I would not be surprised if there was some uh, assembly language programming going on in that. But yeah. If you know any, if you know anybody who's like directly, like directly programming, whatever, uh, let me know. There's like a clip of Rob Hubbard even talking about writing stuff more recently um, for the SID, and like he was, he was, he was doing, he was like doing it in like a, a tracker uh, for the C64. Um, The other resource I wanted to mention was this website called c64audio.com. This is like essentially just like a little record label. Um, I think it's started by a guy named Chris Abbott. And there's like a whole bunch of stuff by Rob Hubbard. There's like a nine volume set of um, it's Commodore 64 SID Anthology volumes one through nine by Rob Hubbard. They're like on streaming and stuff. So if if you want to hear any of this music, that's like a really easy, um, really easy way to find it and and check it out. Okay, today we are talking about Action Biker. Action Biker was published in 1985 by Mastertronic. Mastertronic, uh, UK company, went on to be um, to be acquired by or merged with. I'm not quite sure by with um, Virgin. Richard Branson's Virgin um, 
in like 1988, the this game came on a cassette, a data cassette, uh, and it cost um, a pound ninety nine. Um, how do you say that? One pound, a pound ninety nine. One pound ninety nine p. Is that? I don't know. I don't know this British shit. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, adjusted for inflation, that's like a, like seven bucks. Um, U.S. dollars. Um, Mastertronic was co-founded by this guy, this guy, Martin Alper, who I couldn't like find a whole lot of info. Like I was trying to, one of the things about, like a lot of these old games will have like a developer, like, like an individual person, like will have their name attached to it in some way. Like you can find the credits basically. This one, like I couldn't find credits. It just said, and like, maybe this is like a Mastertronic thing where they don't put the name, um, of the developer on it. I don't know. Or, you know, something like that. I'm not sure. Um, but Martin Alper was one of the co-founders of Mastertronic. And, um, I have probably heard his voice because he was like one of the announcers in Command and Conquer Red Alert, (laughs) which I very much enjoyed as a child. Um, but I couldn't find, like, it, it didn't seem like he went on to, like, develop a bunch of games. I'm not sure really what his story or Mastertronic's story is. But Action Biker um, is an isometric sort of, like, racing game. Um, isometric, I was trying to think of how to explain isometri- isometric. Instead of, like, you know, we think of, like, 2D as, like, you're running from the like left side of the screen to the right if you're playing like Mario, like a platform platformer. But this was like, um, like a different, a different like angle. Like so, if you imagine you're like on in a town with like a north, north, south, east, west, like grid road system, then like imagine you go, uh, like south southwest so you're like uh, going like at, at an angle off of the grid um and then you uh like f- fly your uh surveillance drone up and then like look down so you're at this like tilted angle up in the air kind of looking down that's isometric and it's not like is well okay so it's racing like scare quotes around racing because you're like riding your motorcycle alone around like sort of like an obstacle course while like kind of doing tricks but the tricks are like you like kind of ride up a ramp and then sort of like limply like just fall off the ramp i don't know um i think the point of the game is like fetching these like brown and white flashing items that kind of that are like on the ground that kind of look like tombstones um and then when you pick one up it like tells you like what the item is like in the bottom but they all look this all look the same uh and then i think you can like die by running out of fuel so you have to like go to the gas station and just touch it like 
not actually refuel. You just like kind of go in the vicinity of the gas station and then you automatically um, refuel. At some point you can like ride your bike on like a lake, I guess. I don't know. It, uh, the graphics are, it's terrible. It looks terrible. And, um, it's just like, the game does not look fun at all. The, like, color palette is gross. I don't know. Um, the guy on YouTube beats it in, like, 15 minutes. I think his name is Der Shmoo. Um, this game exists to sell a product to kids. KP Skips, which is like some kind of disgusting British snack. It's like a uh, like a chip. It's like a chip sh- uh, shaped sort of like a the like shell of like a sand dollar. There's like a there's like a disgusting like eighties uh, advertisement where the chip is like being held up in the air and you can kind of see like the sun shining through it it's like it becomes like a not like translucent but it's i don't know it's so gross uh and it gets worse so they're described as like crispy corn fries but they taste like uh prawn cocktail and the plastic package describes it as, quote, delightfully floaty, visibly melty. This, like, makes me want to throw up. Like, looking at these and, like, that description, like, I don't know. Like, it's so fucking disgusting to me. Visibly, visib- not visibly, visibly. Like, it's fizzy, but it's, like, melty. So it's like this, it's like this shrimp chip that melts in your mouth in some sort of fizzy way, visibly melty, delightfully floaty. Why would you, why would you, what, like, is this supposed to like evoke like the image of like a shrimp floating? I don't, it's like so disgusting to me. And like this, uh, I don't, this is okay. Also, this is not me just being like a little baby bitch vegan, okay? I loved seafood. Uh, I used to like shrimp. I no longer crave shrimp, but uh, yeah, fish is amazing. Um, I miss eating fish. It's like the only animal I miss eating. And it's, yeah, so this is like, I just don't know why you would want why would you want to eat a, sh- a a chip that tastes like a a shrimp prawn cocktail? It's disgusting, and it's all like this whole game, like this tie-in advertising, this weird chip shit. Like all of this is very classic, like busted '80s advertising. It just like. It's all very uncanny to me, and it makes me want to throw up. So you you play in this game as the company's mascot, Clumsy Colin. Um, okay, so the music, yeah, the music is not good. The only, like, real redeeming quality to the music here is that it is 
actually very catchy. Other than that, it's pretty terrible. Rob Hubbard does go on to like make some great music for the C64, but this is, it just, it sucks. I'm, and I'm like trying to balance my negativity. Hopefully that will become tolerable by the end of this. And, but I think it's helpful to me, at least like looking back at this stuff to try to pin down like exactly what isn't working and what, what was working. Um, and it's, I don't know, I think it's valuable to see what kind of music he was composing at the start of his video game music career. 1985 was the beginning for him. I don't know. I can't figure out like the, or it's, you know, Games were not released on like a like some sort of worldwide like release date until much later, and uh, it's hard to pin down like when he was working on which different you know pieces of music. Um, so was this his first? I probably not, but it was within his like first year of like video game music composing. And he did a bunch of other games um, in 1985. In 85 or 86, he did at least five other games just with Mastertronic. Um, And he did, you know, he did like an absurd amount of games over the course of his career. Uh, And, you know, I don't know, like making music, like we, like we take our L's, like, not everything is going to be good, whatever. Um, but also, like, on the other side of that, like, this wasn't his beginning of his life as a musician. I think he was performing live, I think, in, like, bars or clubs or something. Um, you know, this dude is, like, a better musician than I will ever be. Better, uh, you know, keyboard player. I think he might play saxophone. Um you know, so, like, nothing but respect, right, but, like, you know, he was, like, 30 when he started composing these, um, video, like, he was born in 55, this is 85, I, you know, I would be kind of embarrassed to, like, to publish, I don't know, I mean, I just think this music is really bad, (laughs) I would be embarrassed to publish this at, like, 30, uh, anyway, but yeah, I don't know. So I'll talk more about his biography kind of in, in the future, like as kind of as some of these episodes looking at his career go on, um, 1985 back to the future, the Goonies, the breakfast club, great year for movies, great year for movies. Um, okay. So we start at the title screen, um, a lot of C64 games have title screens and like that's kind of where the music goes. Um, some don't have music during gameplay and only have music during the title screen. I've been trying to like figure out uh, ways to play these games like through emulation and stuff just to kind of like quickly get a feel for what they're like. I think title screens um, might have been like partially there to like give some like waiting time some like loading time or it, it at the very least it's it's not like you know you open up a video game now and it's like you you can kind of like mash through the title screen and like get to the gameplay really quickly 
um, with C64 games, it seems like, um, at least from the ones that I've experienced, which is very few, but it seems like the title screen comes up and you kind of have to wait for it to do its thing. Like you don't have control over the, anyway, so you're like, you, um, you know, during this like title screen, you're listening to the title screen, like soundtrack music. In Action Biker, there's three different tunes. There's the title screen, there's uh, music playing during gameplay, and then there's also like a little like death fanfare, like which is like only like 11 seconds. So title screen, there's like an incredibly simple bass line, very minimal, simple, uh, a snare on the backbeat, which is like just noise. And then there's like a lead melody, which is like, I don't know, excruciatingly straightforward. And it's harmonized um, with, for the most part, with like parallel thirds. Tune is in C major. Um, there's a an eight bar theme that uh, like, you know, the main melody plays twice and then um, resolves moves to a second section, then back to the main theme. The tune is just like a minute long. Um, the high end on this whole soundtrack is like so incredibly harsh that it makes like Pokemon Gen 1 feel gentle. Uh I don't know. I every like I love that soundtrack, but every time I listen to it, I'm always like stunned by how bright and um you know, how I I don't know that I would call that game like especially after hearing this that I would call like Pokémon extremely harsh, but like Game Boy the high end like can be pretty abrasive. This is just like, I don't know, kind of kind of off the charts um, in terms of abrasive high end. I'm going to talk about that more when we get to the gameplay tune about like why exactly that is. Um, so this like this title track feels like very merry, happy, um, like so straightforward. It feels like childish. Um, it, you know, it's like a kid's game and this feels like music for children, but like music for children, that's like, I don't know, pretty poorly done, but it is catchy. Both of these like main tunes got stuck in my head like crazy for the last week. And I, you know, I mean, that is a powerful thing to be able to write something that's super catchy. Um, the title screen also like serves as basically like a pre-roll ad for these nasty fucking snacks. Uh, and you get to see clumsy Colin, like, I don't know. It's just, they're just trying to sell you the little, the little shrimp chips. The title screen also informs you that you can turn the music off by pressing F7 which I don't know, I find that pretty funny. There's one sound effect in this game. Um, vroom, vroom. 
That's your only sound effect. You're constantly listening to your engine rev in relation to how fast or slow you're cruising around. Um, okay, so the gameplay music itself uh, with the sound effect. So last time I talked about the SID ship, like it has three voices. And you can kind of program these voices to like switch between like types of parts. Um, so like you're not stuck with just the melody being, or like, uh, well, the, the example from this is that like the bass line and snare are, uh, I'm pretty sure are on the same voice. I didn't find a, uh, yeah, I didn't find, I didn't find the, um, the actual SID file, uh, to be able to like, uh, you know, listen to this, like on an emulator or something that's pretty cool that people do. And like with uploading these tunes to YouTube is that they'll make like an oscillator view. So you can see each of the three voices and what each of the three voices is doing at once, which is like very helpful for visualizing what's going on, seeing the switching on one voice between bass and snare, for example. Um, but you use the sound effects that's dedicated to one voice. If you put, if you, if you were trying to also put music there, the sound effect would interrupt the, the, whatever music notes are being played. And because it's like basically constant, there has to be one of these three voices dedicated to the engine revving. Um, so there's two voices left available and we have the lead melody on one and then the final uh, voice plays that accompanying bass line and snare. Here, the snare is noise, but also has kind of like a pitch envelope. So you hear like a bow um, whenever you're also hearing that, that noise, which I don't think is present in the, um, the snare on the title track. Uh, again, like we have a very weak melody, meandering, painful, and the harshness is like, part of it is due to this high range. I have listening to this stuff. I keep going back to like video game music from this time, like Nintendo stuff that I grew up with or that I, you know, love, you know, after the fact or like the stuff that I think is like incredibly well composed. And I think one of the things, um, I'm not sure that like, I'm not sure that I think this might be kind of career spanning for Rob Hubbard is like, he tends to use melodies that are, I mean, like to me that are like higher than I would like them to be. Um, you know, a lot of these part partially because of like the simplicity of these synthesizers, whether we're talking like music on C64 or NES, the waveforms can tend to be pretty harsh um, with the way that they're dealing with like harmonics on like you know, like upper harmonics, blah, 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 on like uh, square waves or pulse waves. And that can, like, if you're not pretty careful about that, that kind of stuff, you know, just like an unfiltered square wave, whatever, or triangle can be like 
pretty grating to to hear. So you have to deal with that in like other ways and kind of limit some of the like longer, more sustained notes. I also just have like very sensitive ears, you know? So if I'm listening to something like this, I just have to listen to it really quietly. Otherwise it makes me go insane. Um, And yeah, so part of it is like, I wish these melodies weren't as high as they are because the Sid Chip, I do think like the high notes on Sid Chips are quite brittle and the low to mid range is like where that, um, like where the Sid Chip like really shines. Um, so part partially it's like kind of just the voicing of these different parts of these melody parts. Um, but part of it is also the, the amplitude envelope, meaning the like attack and sustain. So how quick the note happens and how loud the note stays as it's played over time. Um, it's just very in your face. Like the attack is very strong which kind of makes it like jump at you. And then the uh, sustain is also very loud. So there's no relief. It doesn't like jump at you and then kind of come back. It just like jumps at you and like stays in your face. Uh, and then like the, you know, thinking about machines like this, computers, like there's a certain performance sense that you, that you typically like try to program into the machine. And some of that can be to like try to find a more natural sounding, um, you know, performance, natural, like humanistic, or it can be like pushing the machine in its own, in its own sort of language at like, to do something that's very extreme that a human couldn't do, but is still, uh, kind of, um, you know, a, a pleasing or well thought out performance. This, the, it, the performance just feels like very rigid and unnatural. And like, part of that is that, uh, you know, that amplitude envelope stuff. Part of it is like, the, the, I don't know, the vibrato like feels really, it just, all of it feels very stilted. And, um, you know, I don't know. It's just like, it's weird to hear that because like that is kind of like what you would expect from like, oh, it's just like a computer making music. But I, a lot of composers around this time were figuring out how to make this kind of stuff sound very very natural, um, or very, I don't know, to make the performance itself, you know, all of these articulations, uh, the, to make it expressive, um, in a way that the machine was capable of. And here that just like, doesn't, doesn't happen at all. This, the, like this tune is so like, it's so long. I'm surprised by like how long it is. The gameplay tune is like a little over three minutes, has, you know, half dozen 
separate sections. And some of them rely really heavily on the transposition of short phrases, um, by which I mean, like, you take, you, you take like a short little melody and then you move it up or down in pitch, but the notes themselves, like relative to each other, stay the same. Um, so it's like you're hearing a melody and then you're hearing that melody in like different contexts, both, you know, potentially both higher and lower. In this, it's pretty much just like you hear the melody, then you hear it higher kind of thing. Um, that technique is used in so much music, um, classical, uh, you know, dance music. It That kind of transposition is all over the place. Very, very normal technique. But I do wonder if part of it um, in this instance is a way to, uh, like possibly like a trick to save um, memory usage. Um, Rob Hubbard like talks about that kind of thing a little bit, like reusing little sections to, uh, you know, like the, I don't know, the, the, the games, like these games were like incredibly small, right? So you had to like save data as much as you could, wherever you could. And I, I wonder if that's the case here, but I also have like, I don't know, like I don't, a technic, I have no, I don't have enough technical knowledge of that to like know if that is potentially possible. Um, it's strange to hear how long each of these separate sections lasts. Uh, it's like a very like typical or like standard, almost like song structure or like leaning towards some kind of like classical structure, uh, you know, where there'll be like an intro and then like, here's this main section. Maybe you'll call that a chorus and then it goes to a verse and then there's a bridge to a different variation of the chorus. It's like that kind of like, it. it's still in that mode of thought. Uh, so Super Mario Brothers was published in the same year, which was uh, soundtracked by um, Koji Kondo. And instead of like having this linear, you move, you go from this section to this section, to this section, to this section, and then it's done. It moves from this section to this section, to this section, back to the first section and replays. It creates like an endless loop. All of these sections are very short, but, um, they, they vary like pretty widely. Um, and then like loop endlessly. So it doesn't matter. Like, so you can be on the screen in, you know, world one, one or whatever for however long exploring all of these different things in the game, trying to figure out how the game works. And instead of like the music kind of starting and stopping and like imposing this like sense of time on top of you, um, it just stays with you and kind of follows, follows along um, what you're doing in the sense that like it it stays with you for however long you move to the, ne the next section there's new music that music stays with you it never tells you that something is coming to an end 
and I, I don't know, like, uh, the NES music, like, really cracked the code of that, and I don't think that was, um, I don't think that was, like, I, I think Koji Kondo was, like, kind of the guy who, like, figured that out, but, um, anyway, so I don't, you know, that's something I'm kind of always looking out for, uh, in Action Biker, the music, like, you know, we get to sort of an outro, the last sort of chorus section, if you will, the music resolves, um, it comes to an end, and then the player is treated to 15 seconds of no music, and you, you just rev your engine. Um, and then after those 15 seconds, the tune starts again from the beginning. It's, I don't know, it, it's just like very weird to like uh, experience that, because that's like, you know, this um, typical, like, pop music thing, but video games, like, broke out of that um, kind of standard way of thinking about music, like, pretty quickly. Um, and I don't know, you don't have to, like, be Koji Kondo to, like, make good music for games, but, like, this, you know, spare, ineffectual, and, like, aimless melody um are like made even more frustrating by the way that the composition is so insistent on its own on its own form um you know start go from section to section and wait start again it just feels very it feels very strange i don't know i'm always interested in um the like part of why video game music is so interesting to me is is the way that it creates interactivity this feedback loop this you know the you know video like it's it's audio visual it's also haptic and it creates this like different sense of experience of a sound medium and i don't know all of that is like a big part of why i'm so interested in a lot of those but uh here there's something very jarring and off about the starting and stopping and i think that's basically going to be the case for um maybe all of rob hubbard's stuff um maybe not maybe not i guess crazy comments might be i don't know uh, yeah i i've been listening to this guy's music like crazy for the last uh the last like week or week or so. And I don't know. Yeah. So that'll be a, that'll be an interesting thing to try to kind of watch and see how, how that develops and how, um, uh, Rob Hubbard maybe, um, deals with that over time. Um, the other weird thing about this composition is that there's like pretty much no interaction between the different, uh, voice parts, not the Sid Chip voice parts, but the like uh, voice parts in in a more um, you know melody, harmony, baseline, percussion. Like it's like each thing is kind of like doing its own little thing. The bass is just kind of there as like almost like a just a, an afterthought to the melody to kind of add a little bit of harmonic energy or suggestion to you know you got to have a baseline so you put a baseline and you got to have like some kind of percussion so you just slap a snare on it on the two and four but it's like the melody was there and then 
you know, I, that's one of the other amazing things about a lot of NES music from this time is that the the melodies, the all these different parts will kind of jump between different. You know, I mean, like honestly, I think if like this, if some of this music, if some of these compositions were arranged differently, maybe especially the title music, if like it was instead of like just like okay, let's put a bass and a snare, like let's just focus on the kind of like two or three part melody harmony and um, move kind of between different um, sort of synth sounds, you know? So like, instead of uh, just like cycling through this melody, like let's go from this, uh, you know, like present this melody in one way and then change the timbre of the synth and present it in like a little bit of a different context and then like looping through these like creating like different contexts and like moving the uh moving the melodies between different synth sounds moving the melody between like different um the different voices in like a soprano alto uh you know, tenor bass um, type of type of approach, and I think that's one of the things that makes some of this very, um, you know, like video game music. Like it's so it's so limited, right? And like you you don't have a lot to work with. And I always love hearing it when somebody succeeds at like using these limited resources to make something that's very interesting and compelling. And I think that I think arranging this composition, especially the title track, in a different way would have made it um, more enjoyable. <laughs> um, so the gameplay tune to like talk a little bit about the, I don't know, I was trying to kind of analyze it um, somewhat theoretically. I don't have the greatest theory skills, so bury, uh, bury with me, bear with me. So I don't have the greatest theory skills, so bury me. Um, I don't have the greatest theory skills, so marry me. Uh, the gameplay tune starts sort of by suggesting like a G major seven, um, with like there, uh, there's like a B and a D that show up kind of right at the end. But, um, this, I don't know the, the tune, like it seems like it sort of wants you to think that it's in G major or then maybe that it's in C major um and but it has like all sorts of like accidentals there's like a huge reliance on half step intervals um which are if played at the same time you know it's sort of bouncing back back and forth with these half to half step intervals if you play them at the same time that's like a very dissonant interval um and it seems it seems like the tune is trying to do this in sort of like a blue note kind of way, but it doesn't come across to me as like bluesy or jazzy. It just comes across as like kind of nauseating because it's like constantly doing this like um, all of this like ha- like the 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 main phrase in this that's being transposed all over the place includes like all of these half step intervals and the tonic it feels like it's in C, C major by the end of the tune. Um, but occasionally it feels like the tonic is in G. There's like sort of a transposition to minor. 
Um, the minor section feels like the uh, like like the tonic is E or possibly G. So it's like there's so much transposi transposition of this small phrase that like the key throughout this tune feels like a float unmoored, and it's in this minor section. It kind of suggests E minor. Um, you know, the relative minor of G, but then like there's additional accidentals in that section outside of E, e minor. It's just like really weird. Like you could just like read the whole thing as being in C major. I like, I would read this as being in C major with just like a shit ton of accidentals and, um, I don't know. It's just like really weird. Like, why would you write video game music that is so determined to be like, yeah, I don't, what's the, you know, what's the tonal center of this composition? I don't know. Um, we don't want you to feel any sort of like tonal center, any sort of resolution, any sort of like, there's like no melodic payoff that's satisfying. There's no like, it just it, like it doesn't feel good. It just feels like really afloat and weird. Um, and oh god, the mo like the most egregious usage of this phrase transposition is in the like bridge or transition into and out of that minor section. Each of those transitions lasts fifteen seconds. It's like the longest. Like it's such an unnecessarily long bridge. And um, each of them consists of like a short phrase that rises in pitch each time it's repeated. The first transitional section is uh, is 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 the worst of the the worst of the two. It plays a phrase, raises that phrase an octave, then drops the octave but trans transposes it up a half step. It repeats that like what, seven, seven or eight times, depending on like how you want to count the, the final repeat. It, it's just like, it's, I don't know. It's yeah. It like, it feels like a failed gesture towards classical music or Baroque. Um, but it like, it sounds like a, like a demonic carnival. It's yeah. I don't know. It's really, it's really, really awful. But then the end of the tune, and this is part of why I feel like if I was going to analyze this, I would analyze it in C major, because the the final uh, resolution of the right at the end of the tune comes to a, a C major chord. There's sort of like a three, six, seven, one chord progression at the end if you if you read it in C major. Um, yeah, I, so these like these compositions and the sound is I think the I don't know the 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 revving of the engine is like fine. I don't really have any qualms with that. I guess I don't know. It's like a you know fine like low end revving of the engine, um, but like the compositions, the sound design of these um, synth parts feel rushed, tossed off, poorly thought out. It doesn't feel like a lot of care went into this. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, so I don't know like where this was in his, in Rob Hubbard's 
um, you know, sort of first year of like composing games. Um, but as like a listener, it was like a terrible place to start. And I kind of arbitrarily started here because like going back to that uh, C64 audio, like antho- nine part anthology, this is the first the first thing in the first volume is Action Biker. Um, and it, you know, it feels like, you know, how much were they, how much was like Mastertronic paid to make this? How much did they, how much money did they get from KP Skips? And I, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely like, I'm curious how much money, um, Hubbard made, um, you know, uh, by, uh, composing the, the soundtrack and sincerely hope he made a lot of money um maybe this was sort of okay we're doing this like corporate game not going to care about it that much just whatever here's this like you know maybe it was like something he didn't even maybe this was like a tune he had like in his back pocket and he was like okay well like i don't even like this one let's put it in this game because this game sucks uh you know that's pure speculation on my part that like I'm saying if he had that kind of thought or approach to this, I would be like, I respect that. Uh, that would that would almost make me like this music more. Um, you know, it just it just seems like a job that was like done very quickly without really caring about it. And you know, like that's f- totally fine. Um, I don't think composers were thinking about like, video games as like art really at this point um i don't think rob hubbard thought that the like he talks about thinking like you know this whole video game craze is probably gonna like crash in a few years this is like after the first like big video game crash and you know so he he's like he's just working he's a working musician and nothing but respect for that even you know, uh, like take the money and run as far as like making, uh, like a video game for like a fucking snack corporation goes. Um, but anyway, it is, uh, the music is, yeah, it sucks. I going through, uh, I, I've been trying to do this more and more where I'm, where if I'm like listening to music, if I'm, um, you know, doing research on music, I like to try to make some kind of little remix out of, um, some part of something that I'm listening to partially because it, it, it helps me see inside the structure of the music a little bit better. And I created a few different things with this soundtrack and a lot of it, um, especially because of the uh, all of these half step interview intervals, you know, there's a lot a lot of like dissonance that I had to like deal with or to like try to avoid. So there wasn't a whole lot of I couldn't find a lot of interesting stuff to do. Um, you know, sampling like a kind of like single note from uh, the like flack file. Um, you know, you can, you can, I don't know, you can create some, you know, resampling that note, you can create some cool stuff, but like, especially doing these, those types of remixes, there's like a, I kind of want to keep it 
recognizable in, in, in a certain sense. Cause like you can sample like a note from anything and make anything out of it, but like trying to make something that someone would go like, Oh yeah, I can still hear action biker in that, but it's like in a totally different context. There was only one thing that I made and it was like, there was some more consonant little, like, um, I think like two bar phrase, um, that I took and, you know, was able to kind of do a, a looping, um, very heavily like delayed type thing with, um, if I ever, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't like release remixes of anything like pretty much almost ever. It's very, very rare. Um, as much as I like absolutely love doing it, but I'm thinking about setting up some sort of, um, you know, shitty YouTube channel where I can like post remixes like that of stuff. And if I do that, maybe I'll link back to it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I tried like maybe three different things and that's the only one that kind of, kind of played out. I tried doing some like slowing down and didn't really like how any of that went, but, um, Okay. Now I want to like jump into like a little bit of like why I'm wrong about how bad this music is. Like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, there's so many different like people like involved in these like fan communities. There's so many incredible websites. Um, There's a bunch of different like game databases. And one that I want to give a shout out to uh, because I think it's like very well done and it has been very useful to me. This is a website called Lemon64. There's like a bunch of different database or kind of wiki style websites. And a lot of them are, you know, very useful for der- very or for a variety of different reasons. But Lemon64 in what I found so far it has like they do a good job of like finding kind of like old like primary source stuff like uh um you know video game magazines from the time that uh have like reviews or whatever and then like finding finding those reviews linking to those reviews and so most of uh most of if not all i think all yeah all of the like actual print reviews that i'm gonna mention here um I found through Lemon64. So totally like, su- like just great website. Um, very, gra- very grateful, very blessed to have Lemon64 in my life. Um, none of these magazine articles, these short reviews, none of them mention Rob Hubbard by name. Later ones start to kind of do that. And, uh, there was an interview, like a recent interview where, uh, Hubbard was asked, like, did you know that people were buying games that you had soundtracked, even if they weren't great games, but they were, they were buying the games because they knew that you did the soundtrack and they knew that like you would be writing great music for it. And he was basically like, yeah, I, you know, we didn't have the internet. So I had no idea. Like all I knew was like, you know, like, so the magazines, like these kind of reviews and stuff is like the only sort of public feedback that he's getting in terms of like how people are reacting to, um, the, uh, the, the music that he was making for these games. Um, 
Okay, so this is CNVG issue 47, September 85. Um, Action Biker maintains Mastertronic's tradition of excellent budget price software. At pound 99, you would be nuts to miss it. Um, not much here in the, in the uh, review, but I wanted to give their little ratings. Graphics, 7 out of 10. Incredible. The sound, 7 out of 10. That's amazing. That's, uh, higher, higher than I would give it. Uh, value nine out of ten. Of course, it's a cheap game. You can get it. You can get it pretty, uh, pretty cheap because of the tie-in stuff. And playability nine out of ten. So people are loving Action Biker, Commodore Horizons issue twenty, August nineteen eighty-five. Their review is titled "Batty Biker." Um, quote: The whole feel of the game is excellent. And it's so well-designed that it gives a feeling of space and detail without necessarily being very complex or difficult to start playing. Ace music, too. It's, like, so weird to be reading these and hear people... Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess the music is ace. Um, It also says, uh, you're not told what tasks you have to accomplish. So, Action Biker, Open World, 1985, Open World, Commodore User, Issue 23, August 1985, quote, The KP skips. Love the prawn cocktail ones. Symbol comes up on screen when the game is loading and also appears on the front of the inlay. I suppose the theory is that if you like the snacks, you will like the game. Uh, first, wh- like, what okay. What kind of freak loves the... What kind of... You love the prawn cocktail? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, this is... I, I pulled that quote because... I thought that last sentence was interesting because it's sort of backwards from what I thought. Right? Like... You eat the chips, right? Like, a bunch of people are eating these, like, shit chips. So... Like that, well, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think I I was thinking like, okay, the game is to sell the chips, but this person is saying there's, you know, you can advertise the game from the packets of chips. So the chips sell the game. Maybe, maybe like KP Snips, KP Snips, KP Snips, KP Skips uh, was trying to, Make mo- but they're like they have to be losing money on this game, right? Like, uh, I think like games were more around the like eight pound instead of like two pound, um, price, and they were also giving away games like free. So, I I don't know. I think I'm right. I think they're using the game to sell the chips, but I don't know. Commodore user is saying it's the other way around. Anyway. This, this review has no mention of the music or the sound. Home Computing Weekly, number 118, June 1985. They give the, this game an overall rating of 83%. The sound, 80%. Sound, 80%. Funky tune, reasonably jolly. Not, not overly jolly. Not crazy jolly. Reasonably. Logically. 
a, a civil amount of jolliness. And th- this kind of review structure has like mini reviews from like, I guess it's supposed to like seem like f- a few different people who work there who are like, you know, here's the little drawing of this guy who works at home computing uh, and is like telling you like his thoughts about the game. So the first one, the sound is a very jolly tune and I soon found myself singing along with it after a few games. Next guy says, the music is the best piece yet from Mastertronic, as are the sound effects, and both are very good. Third guy says, Clumsy Colin is an excellent game. First off, this guy doesn't even know the name of the game. The name of the game is Action Biker, but okay. Third guy says, Clumsy Colin is an excellent game with high addictive qualities. The sound is great too, with a funky tune adding to the game immensely. Um, yeah, okay, anyway. This, like, this whole, this, all of these, like, these reviews, it feels like a scam. I feel like I'm being scammed. Um, there is also a review from 2001 on Lemon64. Uh, okay, Swedish name, Norwegian name? Jan Egel Romestrand. How did I do? Um, and the review says, um, quote, the music is kind of charming at first, but there's a limit for everything. After half an hour of play, it gets quite tedious. And if you add another 15 minutes to that, then you'd probably already used the handy F7 option that the makers of the game equipped it with. Um, uh, I don't remember how I found this website. I don't even know what this website is. It's called Scene Stream. 12, 12 years, two months ago, Annie, who has been, quote, lurking since second reality, winky face, says the snare, whatever it should be, totally annoys. Uh, to which Shinobi responds four years later, Annie, please. Typical early C64 snare. Um, the Lemon64 review has a few comments on it, and this is where I, like, well, the, okay, the first ones, okay, these first ones I find, I, the, these first ones I find relatable. Matty B, 2002, says, hours and hours and hours and hours of listening to one of the greatest mind-numbing tunes. Serpicode, 2002, the song, the Action Biker song. It has played in my mind nonstop now for 15 years. Help me. Kill me. Make it stop. TWR 2003 Action Biker is an oldie, but no goldie, rather boring with simple graphics. The only good thing is the smooth, cool music. If if this music is anything, it is not smooth. I'm sorry, TWR, but you are crazy nuts. Neil Collins, 666-2004. You bitches, I've got that bloody tune in my head now. Mike Wise, 2004, played it when it was released. Beat many hard games on the C64, Green Beret, Paradroid, but this one was too hard and the tune hurt me mentally. Uh, same, Mike. Same. Exo, X, X, 
E-X-S-O-S Rock 2005. This is cute. This one is cute. I used to draw a map while I was playing this. The only way to remember where the different things were. I found that, that map a couple of weeks ago. It was 17 years ago since I made that map and I was 10. That is very adorable. Um, Sternhammer, Lemon64 comment in 2021, gives the game an 8 out of 10 and says, quote, played this one a lot on its release as I broke my leg, fishing of all things. It had a real feeling of open world exploration, very decent isometric 3D style graphics, and the usual quality memorable music by the maestro Rob Hubbard. I can still hum its bouncy tune from memory to this day. Slightly on the tough side, the roller coaster claimed me on many occasions, but it certainly had that one more go appeal. A nostalgic and possibly overgenerous 8 out of 10, as it was one of the games which helped me from going crackers with my leg up in plaster. Smiley face. Um, some YouTube comments. This really drives home um, the catchiness, the point of the catchiness of all of this. Uh, although first, let me read this from J Jason1896. This came free with a C64 mag, and even though it was free, by far one of the best games on the C64. Caroline Gunn says, got this game free with skips and loved it when I was a wee lass. The only real true GTA of its day. Um, Stephen Flanagan replies to Caroline and says, Finally, someone else who remembers that Skips Crisps promotion. I don't think it was free, but it wasn't far off. Something like collect six crisp packets. Oh my god. The we're getting we're getting into tongue twister zone here. Six six skips crisps packets. Six six skips crisps packets. Six skips crisps packets. Um, collect six crisp packets and send them in an envelope with a check for 28p to claim the full game from KP. The best deal ever. Uh, Soon Wukong says, played this as a little girl, probably about six, year, six years old. Never forgotten that awesome tune. It's just as I remember it. Debbie Babe 69 says, haven't played this game since the late... 1980s, yet still can hum the tune note for note. 3D Illusion says, I was able to hum along to this tune for the first time I heard it, thanks to it being so genius that I could predict every coming note perfectly at only seven years old. Um, Chad Fernelius says, after 32 years, I remembered the tune perfectly. I hummed along as I showed my children my favorite Commodore 64 game. I remember going over the water with the bike, but I don't think I ever made it to the drag race. Drag race. Huh. Drag race. Mm, uh, Heifs um, leaves um, the, the uh, lyrics that they wrote as a child. If your name's Clumsy Colin, why would you ride a bike? You'll probably get yourself killed. And that's not something you'd like. Uh, anyway, I'm wrong. The This music 
fantastic. Fucking amazing music. It's been in my head for 32 years, longer than I've been alive. Uh, you know, if, if even, okay, I think, I think there's all sorts of insane problems with this music, but to make something that is so, uh, so catchy for so many people, I think is, uh, a real, a real feat, a real accomplishment. Um, you know, and part of this is like, you know, there's, there's nostalgia playing into, into all of this, you know, it's like a, it's, it's an experience you had when you're young. Um, and also like the immersion of like being in it, you're like, you're playing this game for hours. You're hearing this tune over and over again. The music kind of has like a captive audience and that like repetition, I think also really adds to the like memorability of something. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I think like even, even, um, learning about something that's, kind of like bad music it's it's interesting to see the context of all of this and i i find that um aspect of this uh you know video game experience to be a really valuable thing to um to see and to to learn about um totally random um i love it when people name their bands or their like music projects after random obscure old shit so there's a woman from sweden um named sarah nyberg pergament and she uh named her solo project action biker here uh, i looked up her um 2008 myspace on the wayback machine and it says quote in 1983 the very same year craftwork released tour de france and dolly mixture released demonstration tapes Sarah Nyberg Pergament was born in Sweden. After three years of design and art school and appearances in various musical contexts, Sarah sat down by the computer and started writing and producing her own songs. Sometime in the early winter of 2002, the music started to take form, and she named her one-woman project Action Biker after the classic C64 game. Um, yeah, which... I don't know. I just, I always think that stuff is cool. Um, her, some of her project is like, um, in terms of production, like a little bit, a little bit rough. I kind of wish it was a little bit more polished, especially some of the, uh, like vocal takes and stuff because the vibe is, you know, I don't know. I love like that sort of mid two thousands, um, you know, kind of like, there's like a, almost like a lot electronic hipster twee kind of thing. I, I think about like Moom, uh, M-U-M, the like Icelandic band. Um, you know, or even, even Animal Collective a little bit, but like, yeah, I don't know that, that kind of vibe. I, I have a real soft spot for that. And so some of her stuff is pretty fun to hear. Um, for that reason, and I'll, I'll link to probably her like band camp and, and like a YouTube video. That's, um, that's pretty fun. Um, I will also listen to, as I've been like looking through, like researching Rob Hubbard and finding a whole bunch of like all kinds of content about him, um, interviews, um, you know, music stuff, um, all, you know, all this kind of stuff, uh, on YouTube, I've been making a playlist and I will link to my like little Rob Hubbard playlist. Oh, 
Okay, last episode, I was talking about Paul Slocum and the synth cart and his band Tree Wave. I found a, co- a couple of uh, super cool things. I found his band, it's like a lo-fi indie band, pre-Tree Wave, that he was like, I, I think sort of like a bedroom recording project type thing um, with just one one other friend of his. Uh, they're called The Sleuths. They have a release called Sleuth Science. Um, I'll link to that band camp. It's, it's very cool. I don't know. I love that kind of lo-fi indie stuff. Um, you know, Guided by Voices are like one of my all-time fucking favorites. And, uh, this is not really like GBV, but you can hear the sort of like Sonic Youth influence and it's really, um, really cool hearing, hearing Paul like already doing, some of the kind of uh, stuff that he went on to do with Tree Wave, but in like an earlier context and stage of development. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I found that I was like, hell yes, another like long lost little like lo-fi indie record. Um, so that was very cool. I also found, I had no idea this existed, but in 2009, um, Tree Wave put out uh, what they called like a virtual 10-inch. I don't know if they actually pressed it. I'm kind of guessing they didn't, but it's like four tunes. Um, and it's just like on their website. The MP3s are there. You can download them. And um, I don't know. That was very exciting to me because I thought they only had one one uh, release. They have an, a MySpace that is... Um, uh, also like documented by the Wayback Machine. And I spent a little bit of time looking at that. They are definitely a band on like my list uh, to like cover in depth at some point. Um, although there isn't a whole lot of information. So I think that might be one where I actually try to reach out to and see if I can get a hold of anybody who was involved. Um, Totally forgot to mention this, but one of the super cool things about the synth cart is that the space bar kind of like doubled as like a whammy bar. So you could like detune the pitch like by pressing the, the space bar. Super, super cool. Anyway, thank you for listening. This was like, I, I said this earlier, this is kind of like an experiment to see like, I literally just talked about like two like two compositions from one video game and like this dude made like 150 video games do i want to talk about all of those no absolutely not but like some of them i think i will kind of continue going through at some sort of pace and i have no idea how long this episode just went so the experiment was like how long can i talk about like the tiniest little detail and um i hope it was kind of valuable i don't i don't know let me know um let me know what else uh i should talk about um yeah again hit me up nornagard.com and yes thank you for listening
I'm interested in this.